And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most podcasts or broadcasts at theancientbridge.com and there's also my children's radio program, Context for Kids, and you can find information on that at contextforkids.com. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the English Standard Version, the ESV, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. On a positive note, not when I'm recording this, but when you're hearing this, 2020 is over. So <laughs> let's celebrate by uh, talking about the second cringiest thing Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, ever said. We can all agree, I think, that um, the eating my flesh and drinking my blood remark in John 6.53 has to be the most disturbing out of context. And um, it certainly drove people away when he said it. But this, oh my gosh, comparing this desperate woman's little girl to a dog. I mean, yikes and a half. Yeshua sure doesn't like to stay in anyone's boxes. In fact, and, and I'm going to re recommend a non-Gospel of Mark related book here that I just finished reading called Too Good to be False by Tom Gilson. Um, just came out about four months ago and dang, he makes the point. No one would have made up anyone like this as a fictional character. I mean, besides being perfect and showing no character growth over the course of the Gospels, learning nothing, not changing, never making a mistake, you know, the things that make people boring to read about. He said these things that no one would make up because they just drive people away. Like, you know, writing to a mixed but mostly Gentile audience in Rome and Calling an upper-class, um, you know, Gentile girl a dog? Yeah. Not really endearing or helping his cause here. 
And he says these awkward things that would get me unfriended or surrounded by the worst sorts of blowhards. But when he says it, well, it works. It's crazy. Anyway, get the book. Very awesome. Too good to be false. And I am not going to make nice about this or make excuses. A lot of people do. We're going to talk about this in all its ugly glory and talk about what might have been going on, what I believe, based on the context was going on, um, the historical context. Um, we have to let Yeshua be Yeshua. Sometimes he had some really hard things to say. And sometimes like this, we can't be entirely sure why, but we can explore the history and try to come up with a fairly educated guess. What we do know is that this wasn't made up because no one would make this up. What I am not going to do is tell you that this was playful banter because to speak that way to a woman, any woman, would have been extraordinarily inappropriate. I mean, beyond beyond the conversing with the Samaritan woman level inappropriate, which was really, you know, inappropriate in its own way. It was shocking. These guys weren't buddies, okay? This wasn't a lighthearted encounter. This was serious business, and we can't haul this conversation into modern times with modern rules of male-female interaction and etiquette. We have to treat this like a conversation between a first century Jewish man and a heathen woman from one of the classic enemies of Israel and still an oppressor of Israel at the time this happened. There's a whole lot more here than meets the eye. So let's look at it without flinching or excuses. Okay. Let's call this the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus's daughter part two. Because it's the same sort of thing, only it's outside of Eretz Israel. We've had a woman in crisis, a rich man's daughter in crisis, and dead even, which is beyond crisis. And now we have this Gentile's woman, Gentile woman's daughter in crisis. Stories about dealing with women in the ancient world like this were not the norm. And, and Yeshua is very egalitarian in his dealings with women comparatively. They can follow him, learn from him instead of existing to serve men. Um, his named financial supporters were all women. It was women and, and one man who was there with him at the crucifixion. And it was women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. In the early church, like 20% of those named by Paul as leaders in the congregation were women. Junia the Apostle, Priscilla the Teacher, Phoebe the Deacon and Benefactor, etc., etc. But it all started here in the ministry of Yeshua, in how approachable he was, and in how differently he treated women. Even going so far as to eviscerate the liberal divorce laws of the first century that oppressed women terribly. So, if we were going off the example of the rest of his dealings with women, we would be expecting warmth and kindness, but we would be dead wrong. All right, let's start out in chapter 7, verse 24. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now, from where? 
says he got up, you know, from there. Well, we don't know. We don't know where he was before he came here. He and his disciples were somewhere in the Galilee. And all of a sudden he's here. North of Israel, up in the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is most famous for being the birthplace of the infamous Jezebel, whose spirit I hear is responsible Every time a woman gets uppity and allows a man to hear her teach. Oh, <laughs> so just be warned, guys. I am trouble. I'm just kidding. But, you know, I have to laugh when when men act like Jezebel, but they get a total pass. Whereas whenever a woman does stuff that men don't approve of, it's because of Jezebel's spirit. <laughs> Oh, just wait until we get to the book of Revelation. I might have to burst some bubbles. But like I said, he's alone, or at least his disciples get zero mention until chapter 8 in the feeding of the 4,000. But in chapter 8, he is still in Gentile territory, and it says he calls his disciples to help him. So either they are gone here and meet up with him later, or they are here now and go unmentioned. We don't know. We do know that he is well known in Tyre, a coastal city, and, and Sidon, because in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, people have come from that region to hear him preach, and they followed him around. So the buzz would have preceded him. Again, he is likely escaping the region because it still hasn't been long since Herod Antipas killed John the Baptist. And we see him only staying any place long enough to preach, heal, and leave before there's real trouble. He has a lot of ground to cover in a short time, and he can't afford to be killed anywhere except Jerusalem. And even then, it must be on the Passover. He knew what he was doing and, and what would happen. But it had to happen in fulfillment of prophecy, and he would be nothing except a brash you know, young fool, if if he didn't, you know, stick to the plan, Yahweh's, Yahweh's ways, which is going to come up a, a lot in, in the upcoming weeks, okay? And I use young lightly because 30 years was the life expectancy during the first century Roman occupation. Half the people didn't make it past that, so Yeshua was becoming an elder at this point. But Sidon and the prophets are a famous pair biblically. Uh, let's look at 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he rose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called up to her and, and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as I have said. 
but first make a little cake and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son for thus saith the lord the god of israel the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the lord sends rain upon the earth and she went and did as elijah said and she and he and her household ate for many days the jar of flour was not spent neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the lord that he had spoken by elijah now later elijah raises from the dead the son of this same woman and she is a sidonian just like jezebel but this poor woman here in first king 17 she is um she's just barely hanging on in the midst of a famine as we will see she is entirely different from the woman yeshua meets up with but this story of a, the woman from zarephath is about bread so so were the last two stories that the hand washing debate was all about eating bread with unwashed hands while the next teaching was about how bread eaten with unwashed hands can't defile you <clears throat> so this story is also about bread that we're talking about today and the pattern is very important elijah ate with a non-israelite woman asked for bread from her hand asked for water from her drinking vessel all right um yeshua set precedent that made it possible to be in contact with gentiles and to preach the gospel to them but it wasn't something entirely new so he goes into the house presumably the house of a jew living in the area but we don't know and hoping to hide and rest as he often did when pressed by the crowds but you know it's no use word gets around and he gets a desperate visitor and it's always the same story no matter where he goes right so verse 25 but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet the word for little daughter is the gatrion excuse me just the same as with the little daughter of Jairus, who was 12 years old, she falls at his feet. Same wording as with Jairus, the correct posture that one would assume when asking for benefaction from someone more powerful. And by benefaction, I am talking about the reality in a society where you can't just go to the store and get whatever you want or to the bank for a loan if you are a nobody. That's not how it worked. If you needed something, you had to go to the person who could provide it for you. You became their client, and they were your benefactor. They gave to you freely, but it was a give-and-take relationship. People in the ancient world didn't usually take without giving something back unless they were beggars. And even if they were beggars, they would proclaim how, how amazing and generous that person who gave to them was. It was shameful to be an endless glutton using up someone else's resources without doing whatever it is you could do for them. Which is why it was so hard for Yeshua to keep people quiet. Even when he asked him, they probably thought he was just being humble. Wrong. So anyway, all that is to explain why she was at his feet. She was recognizing him as someone whose resources were greater than her own. Not wealth-wise, 
but in terms of what he could uniquely provide that she could get nowhere else, namely deliverance for her young daughter. So she isn't recognizing him as being divine here. Likely she wouldn't quite know what to make of him, you know, as a miracle worker, you know, well, miracle workers, um, were not entirely unknown, nor would she see him as the Messiah because she was not a Jew. Verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. You know, before I forget, we are meant to contrast her reaction to him with that of the Pharisees and their scribes who would witness his miracles and be utterly unmoved. In fact, they would ignore and challenge and try to undermine him in response. She was a Syrophoenician, and that word is a Latin loanword, another indication that the author was a Roman, even if he was also a Jew, because, you know, we keep getting these words that are just glaringly foreign, and they're original to the text. These weren't added later. Now, Josephus had some words about these people, calling them our bitterest enemies in Against Appian 170. Compared to the Galilean Jews to the south, they were very well off financially. They were considered to be oppressors because they were well fed on the food that came from Galilean farms while the Galileans themselves were barely subsiding between taxes and, and tithes. Malnutrition was a terrible problem, as was the loss of family farms due to the heavy tax burdens imposed by King Herod and the temple establishment, the family of Annas, which was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was very rich indeed. In a very real sense, the um, Syrophoenicians were seen as thieves, stealing bread from the mouths of Jewish children. And here we have an oppressor, a wealthy Gentile woman, begging a Galilean miracle worker to save her daughter, and by wealthy, I mean compared to the Jews at the very least. Now, what have we seen so far? We've watched Yeshua scandalize the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem by eating with sinners, touching lepers, not rebuking the women with the issue of blood and refusing to wash his hands before eating bread and a bunch of other things. Let's <laughs> not even do the Sabbath stuff. Oh my gosh. All eyes, if his disciples were there, would be on him to see how he would respond to this woman who was begging his patronage. Verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And it must have come across as a hard slap. It certainly still feels that way when I say the words. Okay. Her daughter, who was eating well at the expense of starving Galilean children, should have no expectation of receiving what rightfully belongs to the Jews first. She's pretty much being told to get in line, be put on hold indefinitely. And it's hard because we see a child and Yeshua's talking about oppressors, the powerful, and yet calling them lowly dogs. Yeshua's demanding that the oppressor acknowledge that what she is asking for does not belong to her any more than the food they are taking from Galilean tables. And more than that, he says it isn't worth interrupting his mission to throw her a bone, so to speak. 
The Syrophoenicians looked down on the Jews and had for many centuries. In fact, in, in, well, in, in effect, they, they undoubtedly saw the Jews as little better than dogs. Impoverished and slaving away to try and scrape out a, a living. But Yeshua is saying, I need you to understand that the God whom I represent, he sees them, the Jews, as his primary people on this planet. He is their God first and foremost. If you want something from him, you have to acknowledge that his primary attention is being on feeding them his bread. You don't have any special rights on his attention, no matter how things look in this physical world. You know, I... I believe with my whole heart that this is what she understood him to be saying, okay? Let me uh, read it again so you see all the parts to this. Verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children, the Jews, be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's, Galileans' bread, and throw it to the dogs, you know, her people. So how will she respond? I mean... That's the $24,000 question. Pretty sure I would get totally uppity about it and guilt trip him about my innocent daughter. Well, well-off women, potentially wealthy Roman citizens, don't take kindly to uh, being mouth off by, to by the rabble. Miracle worker or not. Not, he had just assaulted her honor, her honor rating in her own community. He had shamed her. This was nothing to be laughed off, and yet this woman would have understood the concept of regional deities who were concerned with caring for a specific population group on their own land. But she would also assume that the god of the Jews was under the feet of the Roman gods, and specifically the Roman emperor cult, because the Jews were a conquered people. What would she do? Would she acknowledge Yahweh as being greater than? Would she acknowledge Yahweh as being concerned with the people that her own people were oppressing and eating at the expense of? Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Wow. This woman reminds me of Abigail. David's wife, like one of my favorite women in the Bible. Such wisdom and humility. He degraded her publicly and she acknowledges that he is right in everything. Yes, she answers. She calls him Kyrios, a title of profound respect. She is accepting demotion in honor and reputation and humbly accepting a position beneath him where what he says goes. She doesn't deny that her people have prospered at the expense of the Galilean Jews. She doesn't deny that it makes them oppressors and sinners, a.k.a. dogs. But she does more than that. She honors him with her next statement. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. But what exactly does this mean? I am not asking, this is my, this is my take on it. I am not asking you for the children's bread. Just a few crumbs that you will never miss. How about putting it this way? I have heard what you can do, and this is nothing for you. It won't take a moment. I'm not asking for a seat at the table. I'm not claiming that I deserve to be there. But what I ask, 
will take no effort from you and will cost you nothing. I am not asking for a lot of your power and authority. Just the smallest bit will save my daughter. I don't deserve this. I'm just asking for your pity. Now, that's faith. And it's humility and a mother's truest kind of love in that society where she could have stood on principle and stomped off and unleashed her family on him for assaulting the group reputation. This was a woman with two things. Absolute belief that what she had heard about him was true and a willingness to endure anything on behalf of her daughter, even public shaming. May we all be found with even such a fraction of, of that kind of faith and as wise. I'll be back for the next half hour in a few minutes. I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context. Uh, this is Mark, part 33, where we're talking about the Syrophoenician woman being called a dog by Yeshua. It's one of the, you know, most cringe-fest pieces of, of anything he ever said. It's like, oh, gosh, how could you do that? But as I talked about in the last half hour, the Syrophoenician woman just won Mother of the Year um, as far as ancient Near Eastern... Um, history and society went, and boy, I'll tell you. But, and in, it's funny. You know, the disciples are fighting over who will be the greatest, while this woman is willing to be debased in order to save her child. And the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem are trying so hard to shame him and undermine him. And we have this woman with the issue of blood on the outskirts of society, the um, synagogue leader falling at his feet, and this Gentile woman all doing whatever it takes to get what they know only he can deliver. So what will Yeshua do? Um, verse 29, And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your own way. You, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So, things we can notice here. Unlike the woman with the issue of blood, he does not call her daughter. Why? Covenant reasons. The woman with the issue of blood was a Jew and therefore a member of the covenant community uh, who had been excluded from community life for 12 years. This is an entirely different situation as she is not a member of the covenant community despite calling him curios, meaning Lord or Master, uh, take your pick. She approached a miracle worker, but she wasn't converting. I have mentioned this before, but there is this excellent analogy that someone made between being a customer of Christ and a disciple, and I've searched in vain for it. I believe it was Richard Wormbrand, but it might be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> so it, it goes this way. There are different relationships we can have with Yeshua. The first is the most common, the relationship of being a customer, as though he's a tailor making us a suit of clothes to cover our nakedness. Customers are in the relationship for what they can get out of it. Yeshua isn't their master and king, he's just their supplier. They want eternal life and forgiveness. 
they have never or rarely asked themselves what they owe in return. Then you have disciples who are in it for what they can do for the kingdom. They are first and foremost servants who have a hope of eternal life, but it does not drive them to serve. Love drives them to serve. Allegiance drives them to serve. Now, this woman had great faith in a miracle worker, but she wasn't a follower. We never hear from her again. You know, unfortunately, most of those whom Yeshua met on his travels were no different, and they proved it by being conspicuously absent at the cross despite his good works on, on their behalf and, and afterward, after the resurrection too. That being said, not like she could have followed him anyway and she would not have understood his role as the Messiah, not like his disciples understood it either, you know. This event, you know, we can chalk it up as a sign and a wonder and a foretaste of the things to come when the gospel would go out from Jerusalem even though it would take another 10 years and quite the radical vision. But this episode, it is applicable in ways that we might not think in the U.S. People ask all the time, why don't we see miracles here like they saw in the first century church? To which I respond, uh, we do. But only in third world countries, uh, you know, where the gospel is spreading and people are very poor. And then I get asked, well, why? And I would respond, because they're worthy of the bread while we deserve only crumbs. We're getting our goodies already. We've chosen comfort and prosperity over the spirit. And, and Americans don't like to hear this because after all, we send aid everywhere and sponsor a child here and there and give to relief efforts when we feel guilty or need the tax break. But uh, what else do we do? You know, we have closets full of cheap clothing produced by what amounts to slave labor in Asian countries. We are gluttons while others are starving. We complain about being poor while wasting time on our smartphones. We are the Syrophoenician women of the world, living large while others pay the price. Yeah, we're generous in a way that we, you know, give a bit out of our surplus, but Yeshua never gave anyone credit for that. He honored the widow's might. The truth is that giving is even worse in the quote-unquote Torah-observant community than in the mainstream church because people have benefited themselves of a technicality. You know, that we're supposed to only, you know, give out of our agricultural harvest. Well, that giving out of agriculture fed the poor and the Levites and the priests. Do we honestly think that we're off the hook for feeding people now because of that legalistic loophole? We are supposed to keep the commandments in spirit and in truth. It is not the spirit of the tithe to allow people to go hungry simply because we aren't farmers. And so, in Africa and Asia, where they lack medical care and basic sustenance in some areas, they get the bread. They are sitting as children at God's table, and the African and Asian churches are growing by leaps and bounds because of it. And every now and then, God blesses us, you know, with some crumbs. And we have to own this and repent of it. It's incredibly serious business. We are an oppressor nation in our consumerism, which is exactly what the problem with Babylon was, which... 
you know, reminds me of something that I wrote almost four years ago, and it's scary how far things have progressed. But we have a lot of extra time today. <laughs> so I'm going to insert this here about how dangerous comfort really is. Okay, so you know, and and if you if you listen to my 17 part series Isaiah and the Messiah, we talked about Babylon a lot in historical context, not this nonsense you see on memes and in junk books, okay, but actually what we historically know about Babylon. Um, in the scriptures, Babylon is not entirely bad. Before entering exile, the Jews were not monotheistic. They were henotheistic, worshiping many gods, but acknowledging Yahweh as the head of the pantheon, the top god, but needing help from all these lesser gods. King David, you know, even had a teraphim, an idol in his bedroom that Michael placed in the bed to distract the soldiers in 1 Samuel 19. You know, this all, this henotheism began after the death of Joshua, and it wasn't because they wanted to insult God. It, it's just an indication that we all read scriptures through our unique cultural context and assumptions. The entire world was non-exclusively polytheistic, meaning, you know, the multiple gods they served were not jealous. Henotheism was a step up from that, not having any gods before Yahweh, just beneath him. They saw him as jealous, but not that jealous. We see that this was unacceptable to Yahweh, and, and the prophets repeatedly warned the people, and yet we see Yahweh's patience. They really were trying to do what was right, but they weren't quite getting it. Sounds like the disciples, right? Now, every other pantheon had greater and lesser gods who control different cosmic functions. You know, polytheism was just an indication that no one thought any one god could do it all alone. Sometimes they had more gods and sometimes very few, you know, who were worshipped alongside Yahweh until the exile. Um, exile changed Judaism forever. It was a major correction. The Jews were engulfed in a truly polytheistic society, not just henotheistic. And because of this, they were allowed great religious freedom to worship Yahweh. You know, horrified by what life was truly like in a society bereft of the one true God, they chose to worship him exclusively. Um, becoming enormously concerned with what scripture said about acceptable worship. And that worship has remained exclusive to this day. But I, I need to add a caveat here. When you see books like First Enoch and, and different Second Temple period um, works that were obsessed with angelology, like all the angels, it's just henotheism under another banner because instead of having Yahweh in charge of everything now, oh, you have an angel underling who is in charge of the snow, an angel underling who is in charge of this. It, so it's the same thing, but they just changed it up a bit. But they're, they're working on it. It's, it's hard to, you know, totally change the way we think. Now, the original idea of a vaccine is this. Being infected with a controllable measure of a virus at a certain stage of its life cycle and being able to suffer through it and overcome it naturally builds the immune system to give immunity. They used to do this with smallpox, you know, um, 250, 300 years ago. No, it was 
actually more like 200 years ago. Yeah. Um, but the body learns what the disease looks like and learns how to deal with it. The early vaccines did that incredibly well. And this is not an invitation to talk about vaccines, only the Bible. Okay, that was Babylon, God's vaccination against idolatry. <laughs> the Jews got a snootful of the real thing and the true lack of freedom that people have within it to be led by and obey God's laws. As a result, the Judaism that emerged from Babylon was hyper-anti-idolatrous. This hypersensitivity was a direct lead up to the Maccabean revolt, the Jews wanting to die before going the path of betraying God ever again, even though they were obsessed with angels. Isn't that cool? Isn't that funny? A great many, you know, did die. They allowed themselves to be slaughtered instead of fighting on the Sabbath. They endured torture rather than eat idol meat, according to one pretty sketchy legend. Uh, but the mothers illegally circumcised their male babies only to die with them hung around their necks, which is historical fact, as is the being slaughtered on the Sabbath. Now, why was the command given, come out of her, my people, in Jeremiah 51, 41? Well, they had been sent to um, Babylon against their will. Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he was a brutal and idolatrous man. You know, he was used as God's own tool, his, his servant. Okay. But Nebuchadnezzar had gone too far. He had been too brutal. He enjoyed his job. God sometimes uses the unrighteous to discipline his people, but woe to the man who enjoys doing it, who inflicts too much punishment and shows not enough mercy and refuses to give God his due respect afterward. When the discipline is done, what happens to the people who went too far, who relished slaughtering the apple of God's eye? Well, they have to be judged themselves, and they were by Cyrus the Great, who destroyed Nebuchadnezzar's line. The Jews were warned to flee out of the way of the coming destruction, not from idolatry. That's not the context here. Babylon was an incredibly comfortable place, the commercial center of the world, and they had religious freedom. There were also some bumps along the way where kings were manipulated into actions that put Jews in jeopardy, but all in all, the Jews were safe and cozy there. They were prosperous and influential. It was hard to contemplate leaving. And in fact, at that point, they had nowhere to go, really. But this was a call to get ready to go. They were subjects of the Babylonian Empire with no homeland of their own to legally return to yet. But that would change. They were to be ready. Cyrus II, the, the Great, would change that. And they would be able to leave in the last half of the 6th century BCE. Able to go back to a very hazardous Israel to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And those who did faced hardship and death, total loss of comfort, and the status they had in the empire. It was somewhat like the prospect of those Jews who uh, want to leave America and make Aliyah today. Israel's good. It's the land of my king and always will be. But those who go are leaving a very safe and easy way of life here in order to go to a place where jobs are hard to get unless you speak Hebrew as well as a native born. And the threat of being murdered by terrorists is very real. Still, the call to come out of her is spiritually always before us, not just the Jews. Are we willing to leave our ease and comfort 
to go where God is leading us away from what we've always known. Following God is always difficult. It rarely takes us over well-tread paths. <coughs> it's not comfortable. It comes at great cost to ourselves, and sometimes it's not safe. And yet, where is God? Is God calling us to live well-fed in our cities, suburban or country homes, pleased with ourselves in our safe religious lives? Or does he call us to turn our eyes away from all that ease when the time comes? Now the Jews who did not come out of her, who refused to go rebuild Jerusalem in 530 BCE, ended up being faced with slaughter at the hands of Haman around 50 years later, during the rule of Cyrus's uh, grandson, um, Xerxes I. It is only after this genocidal attempt that many more Jews made Aliyah under Artaxerxes, the king mentioned in the Chronicles of Ezra and, and Nehemiah. Now sadly, it became popular within Christianity during the Protestant Catholic Wars to mischaracterize this call to come out of her as a clarion call against quote-unquote Babylonian idolatry. But this isn't the context. In fact, Babylon's idolatry rarely gets a mention in the entire chapter. When it does, it is in their relation, it is in relation to their being shamed as part of God's overall vengeance. Furthermore, when the danger of idolatry is mentioned in the Bible, it's in connection with Egypt, Canaan, and Jeroboam. Babylon, on the other hand, is overwhelmingly referenced in respect to commerce, military, might, and the luxury provided by those. God didn't send Israel into exile to introduce them to idolatry, but to cure them of it, and to make them sick of it before they could rebuild the temple as mentioned, as commanded, excuse me, in Haggai chapter 1. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the authority to subdue the people as well as the other nations on earth, but he misused his power and was unspeakably cruel, as were his descendants. He amassed tremendous wealth. Babylon was probably the greatest commercial giant of the ancient world. Head, you know, hence the uh, head of the statue in his dream was made of solid gold. The wealth of the world was centered in Babylon. It was the merchant's equivalent of Mecca. And the whole world was drunk off the luxury and profits. Um, not the religion. After all, Babylon was simply one of a great many heathen nations, not unique in the ancient world. They were all entirely idolatrous, every single nation, and so Babylon was not unique in that way. Babylon's uniqueness lay in her military prowess and especially in her commercial dominance. Babylon was sent to punish God's people and went overboard. Babylon destroyed the filth that had overtaken um, God's temple and, and his city Jerusalem and went overboard. Once the 70 years of wrath were completed, God had achieved his vengeance, as Jeremiah 51 clearly shows. Babylon dishonored God in every way instead of honoring him as they should. And when Nabonidus took the sacred temple vessels and placed them in the hands of heathen to drink to the honor of the gods of silver and gold, that was the final straw. Jeremiah 51, 24 gives the final sentence against Babylon. 
I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your eyes for all the evil they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. God's honor was tied up in Zion, and it still is. That's why all the nations still fight over Jerusalem. Why every nation seeks out a place for their God there. Islam, for example, set up mosques all over the Holy Land, you know, of every all over the holy ground, excuse me, of any other religious site they destroy, to shame the defeated gods and by extension the people who worship them. Since the end of World War II, and even long before, Zionists have been crying out, come out of her, my people, because they see now what too many Jews of Babylon did not understand. If the Jews had all returned to Israel at the time of the initial decree of Cyrus, then no one would have been able to harm them or subjugate them. There were enough Jews in the world at that point that their sheer numbers would have overwhelmed the Samaritans. You know, they could have rebuilt the walls of the temple quickly, and they could have avoided much of the bloodshed under the later Seleucids. Come out of her, my people. It is a statement of reality. You can generally only be persecuted when you live in small pockets around the world, like the 1% of the pre-World War II German population whose passports were taken easily and whose voting rights and jobs were taken just as effortlessly. Of course, superior weaponry can change that, as we saw in apartheid South Africa, where the minority terrorized the majority. In general, however, it holds true. As Gandhi taught the Indian people, there is strength in numbers, even strength, even enough strength to drive out the oppressors. Come out of her, my people. Before World War II, you know, in 1933, there were approximately 15.3 million Jews in the world. After World War II, there were roughly 9 million Jews in the world, with just over half living in the Americas. In 2014, there were 13.9 million Jews worldwide, 6.1 million of those living in Israel, and 5.7 million living in America. You know, that's right. There are fewer Jews now than there were in 1933, and anti-Semitism is rising again. And I wrote this in 2017, okay? And it's worse now, a lot worse. I don't blame them for not wanting to leave America, but I'm increasingly wondering if they're supposed to go. We are the new commercial giant giving them religious freedom. We have made it comfortable to stay when they belong to the land and the land belongs to them. They need each other, the land and the Jews. Okay, the land of my king is good. You know, so good. But too much of it lies undefended because God's people have been spread out too thin in other nations. Too many Jews live undefended as well because, again, they're spread out too thin among the nations. You know, I'm torn. I want them here because I love them and they bring blessings, but a growing part of me wants them to go home. Because increasingly I feel a tug at my heart because they should be in Israel, even though this is also their home. And I fear for the days when this will not be their home anymore. And may it never happen, but when, when we will have to hide them and feed them and care for them at the cost of our own lives and the lives of our children, you know, already I see them being increasingly slandered among some cultish fringe leaders. But how long before the cultish fringe becomes the mainstream? 
Hitler was fringe once, and so was Stalin. Fringe, but very charismatic. Lots of charisma. Hate burns brighter and brighter until the fuel runs out and it fizzles. Our, our modern Google society has too much fictitious kindling out there right now to ignite the hatred of people who are quick to believe whatever fuels their contempt. As though people with web pages are automatically credible as long as what they say either outrages or appeals to us. People who don't want to believe they can be deceived are easily distracted and fooled when told that somebody else has already lied to them. In their offense, it, they become easy pickings for con men and women, and so you you get these teachings that are just raging out there about Khazars, you know, not being real Jews, and, and, and they don't know the origins of the Khazar theory. They haven't looked into it. They don't know why. It originally came up, and there's no time to talk about it here, certainly. But even if people aren't genetically Jews, is is being Jewish about genetics, or is it about living as Jews? I mean, is is being a follower of Yeshua about genetics? It's never been about genetics. You remember at, at Sinai, we had the, uh, the mixed multitude who came out of Egypt with the children of Israel and they all took us. It's not, it's not about genetics. And even if it is, you know, we don't hate. And when believers are telling you to have contempt for a people group and a hate for people, you need to run and stop following them. See you next week for another miracle in Gentile territory. Music